Welcome to another edition of the 1% Better Podcast with your host, Rob O'Donoghue. Hello there. Welcome to 1% Better episode 155. And it has been or is continuing to be another crazy period, a few days as I record this on Monday night, episode will be out on the Friday. Uh, I try to get the intros done a bit early. Ireland is still uh, ramping up in numbers of COVID-19 tests and confirmed cases and unfortunately a couple more deaths, which um, which is not good. And I think in the UK, just as of tonight, uh, they've introduced a much more locked down scenario for everybody which which probably will come here soon but as we see the numbers come out day by day uh, that'll definitely start to give an indicator of what the next steps are so yeah lots of tough times and listeners to this show from i'd say over 100 countries and typically would um, probably be going through the same things so all i can say is hope you're doing okay my thoughts are with you and absolutely take the necessary steps that you're being advised to take it seems as if the the only real way of tackling this is by listening to the social distancing requests and staying at home and just uh, obeying by those rules and not mingling or mixing with anyone outside your direct family who've been in the home with you for however long at this point I heard something from one of the chief medical officers of some country and it kind of just hit home in a way that it's a virus that it's not out there. It's not in the ether, really. It's it's in us. And the only way it can go anywhere is by us transmitting it to somebody else. And it's important to think of that. Uh, And the other message of people saying, imagine you already have it, act like you have it already. I was going for a jog tonight just down by Porky Cueve, which is the Gaelic football stadium in Cork. And that has been set up as a test centre for, for testing for COVID-19. And it was, it was it was definitely shocking, I guess. But, but knowing that there's a backlog of tests to be done in Ireland, it probably shouldn't have shocked me. The amount of cars that were down there on a lovely Monday evening weather-wise. A lot of people in that traffic jam to get in there to get tested and i'm sure that's just going to ramp up over the next while so interesting times difficult times but yeah i just want to make sure people are are taking on whatever they're listening to repeating it again and again and again hopefully it'll get through to some because while i was driving down when i was passing that car traffic jam tonight I saw on Twitter later that there was a similar ca- traffic jam going into McDonald's to buy their last Big Macs for whatever duration or period of time, and I just can't can't understand that at all. It's ridiculous that uh, that there's a there's a run on McDonald's like there was on toilet roll. And anyway, the, this is the first interview of season four. Let's get into that. And uh, the clips from last week were snippets from listeners. This one is an interview, and it actually is 
one I was really excited about when I recorded it. Um, definitely still excited about sharing it. Uh, just everything else in the world that's happened over the last while has probably changed as much. But it's with a gentleman called Peter Kalmus. He is a climate change activist. He works in the area of climate change. Uh, he also he works for NASA in the US. He has a PhD in astrophysics, uh, a highly intelligent guy. He's an author and he is, as I said, a climate activist. He's really trying to make a difference, make an imprint on the world in a positive way. And the way he believes that that is going to happen through climate activism is by people taking action. And he's doing his own bit to do that. During the episode, we talked about many things, but obviously climate change was at the center. We talked about his career, how he actually moved from being a, an astrophysicist into more earth science and his interest and passion for having a positive impact on climate change. Talked about turning points in his life, certain moments where he realized he had to focus on this work more than anything else. The birth of his children, that had a big profound impact on making him look at uh, life through a different lens. And some of the, the key things you can do to make gradual impact on reversing the, the challenges we face with climate change. And just to note, this is Peter Kalamas's own views. These are his beliefs and his opinions and not that of his employers. He did want me to stress that, but it is difficult not to believe what he is saying uh, to be true. Obviously, you do your own backup research, whatever you want to do about it, but this man has dedicated a lot of his life in the last de decade or more to this and it's hard not to buy into it. Lots of really interesting stuff. I won't drain it much more or let you get into the interview. If you do want to become more in the way active around climate, I have shared some links uh, in the end of the episode notes. In Ireland, there's a website, stopclimatechaos.ie, friendsofearth.ie. There's another more general one, planinternational.org. And, and the reason I'm sharing them is because You'll hear at the end, Peter says how anyone can make a difference is become an activist. I think more than ever now, and it's interesting, when we recorded this was the 2nd of March. At the time, COVID-19 was just beginning to ramp up in Italy and they started to do some lockdowns. At that time, we talked a bit about it. And I was interested in his thoughts on how this pandemic or epidemic at the time, because people were really taking action because of fear, how could they learn lessons from it for the climate change action, which is in many ways abstract and feels like it's a bit far away and it's not impacting us now? That is certainly not the case with COVID-19. And what are the lessons that you could learn from Peter Believes? Climate change, the impacts of that could kill hundreds of millions of people in the next number of decades if we don't do something about it. Maybe the activities were undertaking right now with COVID-19 are setting us up for future success in this movement. We talk about that. It's, it's a really interesting one. Thanks to Peter for his time and I hope you enjoy this one. And if you're into the areas of climate change and you want others to know a bit more about it, please do share this one out. That's my only ask and I would really appreciate it. So there you go. Enjoy this one with Peter Kalmus on climate change. And as I said before, I'll keep saying it, please take care and stay away from each other for a while. Good luck. Hey folks, welcome to another episode of 1% Better. And this week's 
topic is certainly one I've been planning to address or dive into for a long time, but um, eventually got here. And it is with somebody that has a huge experience, an expert in the field. Peter Kalmus, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me, Rob. So Peter, give us an introduction. Tell us a bit about yourself and uh, your line of work so we can tee it up nicely. Yeah, so I am. I live in Los Angeles. I am a scientist, but I'm a pretty unusual scientist. I um, <laughs> I studied physics in college, and then um, took some time off. Um, uh, spent some time as a programmer on Wall Street after college, also teaching high school physics. Um, and and then felt really like I wanted to be part of this quest of human knowledge and contributing to human knowledge. And after you know after two or three years of working on Wall Street, building trading platforms um, in, in a language called Java mm-hmm. and, and feeling like I was helping rich people get richer. I'm like, this is, I've had enough of this. And so I, you know, willingly gave up a very lucrative path and went back to graduate school at Columbia University where I was, I was, I, for, for most of my early life, um, you know, from high school on up, I was in love with astrophysics and specifically cosmology. So I started working for, LIGO, the gravitation, um, gravitational wave observatory. And I worked for with them for eight years and got my PhD and then did a postdoc and helped make the gravitational wave detectors better. So these are, these are, uh, waves that propagate through space. Well, space time actually at the speed of light. So they're these very, very tiny, hard to detect ripples in the fabric of space time that come from these cataclysmic cataclysmic astrophysical events like merging neutron stars, binary neutron stars, or merging black holes. Um, and then over that period of time, around, so my PhD was 2004 to 2008. About halfway through that, I started to get uh, to, to realize that we had a real problem here on Earth, which was uh, the climate emergency. And um, uh, you know, heard from Jim Hansen at one of the physics colloquia. He was working at the Goddard Institute for Space Studies, which just was a few blocks down Broadway in on the Upper West Side. So just a few blocks south of um, of, of the the Columbia Physics Building. And he said he you know he gave up you know 50 minute physics colloquium, pretty standard weekly thing. All the you know, most of the physics faculty and grad students gather in this, you know, old lecture hall and hear from a physicist who gives a talk about his or her work. And Jim Hansen came and said, the planet is in radical energy imbalance and explained how that worked and what we knew about radiative forcings and, and why there was more energy coming into the planet than going out. And I was on the edge of my seat and I said, this is like a huge, huge problem. And so I started reading about it, getting more and more worried about it. And finally, eventually, I um, switched my field into earth science, and I started out in atmospheric science with another postdoc um, at uh, the NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory. So I was at Caltech for my postdoc, in which which is a few miles away from JPL, for my postdoc in, in astrophysics. And I was just getting more and more worried and finally took the plunge and switched fields, which is a big deal. You know, I was giving up sort of tenure track possibilities um, in astrophysics. It turned out I basically had to sit on the sidelines um, uh, for the actual discovery of gravitational waves, which was, you know, the, the scientific achievement of a lifetime. But I left the collaboration about a year too early to, to be a part of that, um, which was a pretty big blow. But I just consider that a sacrifice to 
a very worthy sacrifice to to this project that I'm now a part of, which is to try to effectively save the life support system on this planet from literally irreversible harm. I, I really want to emphasize, I don't think most people realize that this yeah. isn't something that we can just fix later. This is irreversible stuff that we're causing right now. So that's kind of my scientific career path in a nutshell. Now I, I'm making a switch within earth science to actually studying ecosystems, which were, was kind of the thing that I was most worried about when I was switching in. So I switched into atmospheric science and now I'm kind of internally switching towards studying biodiversity and ecosystem breakdown. Wow, we could probably do a, a whole series on many of the topics you talked about there, um, but, but in five minutes of an overview, it's great to kind of hear I suppose the, the journey you went through I might just ask a couple of questions about that before we kind of get into climate change in general um, always interested in what the motivating factors are in my guests early on and you said when you came out of college you worked on Wall Street you were doing Java programming programming would have been something I did very badly in my uh, university years as well did you always even from the get-go working on Wall Street and doing that was there a, something inside you saying this just isn't right and did you just kind of push that away for a while well you know what it was i when i was a physics undergraduate um i did my undergraduate at harvard i got depressed like serious depression thoughts of suicide etc and and i couldn't it's impossible to it's very very hard to do something as hard as physics when your brain is basically eating itself alive and you feel like you're down at the bottom of this deep well so i didn't have the confidence to go straight to graduate school and i um I left Harvard. I, I spent, basically spent a year kind of mostly doing nothing and just recovering and, and also like writing letters to the, the woman I was in love with who became my wife. And she came back from the Peace Corps and we moved to New York City together. And I just wanted to have a job and just kind of like be, be living life in New York with this wonderful woman. And um, and still didn't have the confidence to go to graduate school. And so it, it basically took me it took me four years to muster the confidence to do the GRE, uh, you know, brush up my physics, um, ask for recommendations from my old professors who, you know, I felt this sort of sense of shame that I hadn't done well enough with them. And so I applied to Columbia uh, and, and the first time I didn't get in. And so I realized I had to up my game. And so I, uh, I, I was, you know, down on Wall Street during the day and then I would take the subway all the way uptown to Columbia at night where I worked for free in uh, in the lab of a cosmologist. She was very generous to let me do some some kind of pretty simple undergraduate level projects for her. And I also uh, audited a quantum mechanics class because when I was depressed, I actually got a D in quantum mechanics at Harvard, not because I'm a bad physicist, but just because I literally couldn't think and I couldn't, I didn't even go to the, the final exam. I literally um, was just wasn't, I was so unwell that I couldn't go to it. So anyway, um, so I, I audited this quantum mechanics class, took the final exam and aced it and um, got recommend, got newer recommendations from those two professors and then did get in the second time. So so it wasn't like, I, you know, the, the Wall Street thing was just kind of a stopgap. And, you know, I was just kind of exploring life. It's and, and frankly, too, I was sort of a, a little bit just thinking about myself and being a little bit selfish at the, during that point, still sort of recovering, but just I wasn't fully. I was fine trying to figure out who I was. I wasn't really at that time aware of like 
trying to make the earth a better place and the planet a better place and, and, and thinking about other people and their struggles. I was just kind of in it in kind of like a, a little bit of a narrow way. And then in 2006, also a really big event in my life was that my first son was born. And that really kicked me out of that selfish careerism. And I started thinking about the future on this planet. I started thinking about non-human um, plants and animals and, and beings, non-human beings that were suffering under climate breakdown and habitat loss. And I just became, my, my eyes basically got opened um, to at this kind of, you know, another thing that happened at the same time was I started meditating. And I, I don't haven't said that in a lot of interviews, but that was a major kind of opening event for me as well, where I kind of developed a lot more compassion and came out of my own sense of just wanting to have more for me, you know, like I stopped caring about that so much. And I'm just like, man, like life is really short. I'm here for a short amount of time. And I want to spend my energy and my precious time on this planet to just like help make things better for other yeah. beings, basically. No, absolutely. And a lot of things, again, I suppose, triggered for me there. I, the name of the show is 1% Better. So we're, we're both in kind of a mindset of helping things improve. When you were when you had the depression and when you were down, I suppose, and I'm actually doing a, I'm, a, I'm an executive coach and I, I do a lot of coaching for people to, you know, move forward and progress. And the area I kind of really focus in on is the areas of emotional intelligence and EQ, which ties in self-awareness and self-management, self-control. And obviously it strikes me from your experience and from your background, huge IQ would be, would probably be fair to say, but maybe it might have been around that time when you started to look more in on yourself. Uh, there was EQ or emotional intelligence development. Would, would that be fair to say? And was there anything specific you did to kind of develop those, you know, s softer skills in a way? Yeah, it's interesting that you bring that up. I, I, I think a lot about what I what I call non-human intelligence, you know, like the intelligence of a tree, for example. Trees, trees are ridiculously smart. I mean, they, they share nutrients underground through their roots um, with, uh, you, you know, using uh, basically mushrooms as intermediaries. And, you know, they talk to each other when they uh, when when one of them gets sick and gets like attacked by insects, for example, it, it'll send messages, chemical messages, messages to its the, the trees in its neighborhood. Uh, you know, they even give um, uh, when they know they're going to die, they they give their nutrients that are stored to the trees around them. And they 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 give more of those nutrients to the, the trees that are directly related to them, basically their children. So they're amazing. And but they don't look intelligent to, to most humans. Most humans have this much more narrow view of intelligence. So. Um, yeah, if anything, I would say that emotional intelligence might be more important. <laughs> Maybe it's more closely aligned with what, what we could call wisdom. Um, and for me, um, you know, I don't I don't think it's possible to really to know what it's like for someone who's actually depressed if if you haven't experienced that yourself. So just the experience of going through that hell, um, I think naturally if you survive it, 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 you come out the other side with a greater emotional intelligence. Like I can, I can feel the darkness sometimes at, at the edges of my consciousness wanting to come in. And because I've been there, 
I don't ever, I don't indulge it. Like I'm pretty disciplined and I say, no, I'm not letting you back in because I'm never going to that place again. Cause I know how, once you get in there, it's so hard to get out of there. Um, so, so for me, the, the practice more than anything, like I mentioned that developed it. Well, you know, having kids, man, that is a practice in terms of kind of emotional dealing with other people and, you know, co- compromising and, being able to read the room and to empathize with what other people are going through. Um, but then also meditation, because um, when you sit and meditate, the, the kind of meditation I do, and basically it sounds simple, I'm observing the reality of change in both my physical body and in my mind, in, in the mental part of my body. Is, body there, a name mind. For, is there a name for this yeah. technique? It's, it's, it's called Vipassana meditation. Vipassana, yeah, uh, yeah. 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 Um, you basically just observe the reality of change because, you know, we, we, we tend to be under this illusion that we can control things and that things are static. I think, I think there's this, we, we tend to even, um, sort of reject the notion. We know intellectually that we're going to die, but I think we tend to walk around in, in regular life and somehow at an emotional level, we reject that. And we, we tend to pretend that we're not going to die unless we're faced with, you know, maybe some kind of, um, uh, you know, serious illness or, or something. But, you know, when we're, when we're healthy, when we're young, we tend to walk around and sort of feel like we're immortal. Um, when you when you look at carefully and, and in, in quietness and you can discipline your mind to actually observe the reality of change, just sensations on your body. If you think about what is a sensation, it's the it's the interaction between your mind and your physical body which is a mysterious thing if you think about it, how how we're made out of matter, but we can actually feel sensations in this matter. Um, and every sensation that you feel represents some kind of biochemical change happening in your body. So you get very attuned to the fact that your body and your mind are this kind of constant flux. Um, and something about that makes you develop compassion, makes you realize that you're going to die because you know that you, you're experiencing that change at a, at a at a deeper level than just intellectual knowledge. And that sort of brings all kinds of ability to connect to other people because it's a shared experience that we're all going to die, um, connect to other beings that aren't human because you realize that you're made, you're composed of, for example, carbon that is shared throughout the earth system over billions of years and it's recycled. And so you start to, to really the barriers between what's what you think usually think of as yourself and other people and the rest of the earth system. And even going outside of the earth system, all of those, those boundaries start to break down. And I think in a really powerful way. Mm. That's again, a really interesting perspective because it, it ties into what I suppose I wanted to even start the show off with. And when I, research climate change and when i think about it and I, I was reading something recently about you know obviously how abstract it is in a way and how people don't really get it so if 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 if, if you say to somebody about you know somebody was bitten by a shark they would get really scared of that thought or image um even though you know it happens one in a million or whatever um and and even now with the coronavirus i'm in ireland and it's kind of beginning to to take hold you know and there's panic people are buying toilet roll uh, like out of shops and the, the just there's a huge panic going on even though it's a you know an impact of one to three percent on average of of um you know of the population still small numbers but people are 
it's more tangible in a way whereas with with climate change it seems more abstract and people think like it's much further away and it's not not really going to impact them or or it's not going to have a material impact on them and i think when you the way you, the way you explained doing the vipassana meditation it kind of makes that connection for you to to really understand how these events and and and, and climate change as an example will have those sort of impacts so does that is that something you're familiar with? Does this resonate yeah, with you? It's exactly right. I, I've been thinking about that a lot over the last few days. Um, uh, you know, not to you know not to cast aspersions on others, but you know, we we are uh, we. I think we have evolved to be pretty selfish creatures for the most part. And the the real difference here is p- people are responding. In a, they're in emergency mode. Our institutions and individuals kicked right into emergency mode with coronavirus because people think, oh, gosh, maybe I could die. The problem with climate change is they think, oh, someone else is going to die. I don't care about it. So um, that that kind of lack of compassion and lack of connection to others has been you know, more, I don't think the average. I don't know if we don't talk about this that much. We should talk about it more. It's hard to see how to fix it. But, but I really think that lack of compassion and lack of connection and this sort of innate selfishness, which is unfortunately pretty prevalent uh, among humanity is, has been a huge barrier to climate action. And so one of the things I push for as a climate activist, I'm, I'm pretty fairly rare as a scientist activist, but I can't, you know, I can't look at the science and then not be an activist. I can't know how things are breaking down in the earth system and then just, you know, write papers about it and do nothing else. Like I literally can't, like I have no choice. I have to be an activist. Um, and one of my, one of the places where I decided there would be a pr- relatively good return on investment of my activist energy, which is extremely limited. We all, we all have limited time and energy and we get tired and we have families and I've got to try to a job that I have to try to keep doing. Um, so there's a, there's, there's a, like anyone else, there's limited time and energy. But one of the things I decided was a pretty good leverage point was to push for flying less. And, um, you know, for a lot of reasons, uh, it's, it's really, it's this little microcosm of climate justice because only the globally very privileged are even able to afford flying. You know, a very small percentage of humanity has ever even been on an airplane. It's something that there's no carbon-free replacement for. Um, there's, and, and we have to, let's be clear, we have to go down as a species to zero carbon. We can't stabilize where we are. We can't go down a little bit. We can't stop at like 10% of our, our current carbon emissions. We have to go down to zero carbon emissions. So there's in, in, in a carbon-free, the carbon-free future we need to stave off even further climate catastrophe. There's no place for flying and we don't have carbon-free planes yet. And, and it's such a cultural norm. Everyone loves to fly. It's they they love to post about it on Instagram. They think that you know they they think it means that they're having a successful career, so they feel important when they fly, et cetera, et cetera. So it's deeply woven into our cultural norms right now. Um, and as a so as a flying less advocate, um, I haven't flown since 2012, by the way, because it just uh, just th- that that level of essentially unnecessary carbon emissions makes me feel like. Uh, it's all, at this point in interviews. It's always hard for me to explain what it almost makes me feel like I would vomit. Like this sense of, I just a sense of panic uh, that I would feel with going on a plane. Anyway, I I, I can't do it. You've but built it, up it, such I, a momentum. I think it as well, though. <laughs> I know that like when you've gone, you know, 
taking that step for so long and having do it, yeah. the thought of breaking that almost would make you feel, you know, nauseous. Oh, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Sometimes I literally have nightmares where I'm on a plane and I'm like, oh my God, who am I? Like, what? This flight isn't worth it. Why am I here? You know, I got to get off this thing. So it's funny. Um, but what I was going to say is it's been deeply frustrating to me. I get so much pushback from climate activists and from other scientists who still like to fly. They They try to tell me that I'm doing more damage than good to the movement by emphasizing what they call individual action, which is not how I think about it at all. I do not think about my flying less as individual action. I feel like it is simply expressing the genuine emergency that we're actually in with my actions as opposed to just my uh, words. And um, it's been deeply frustrating for me over the last few weeks to see how quickly humanity has moved away from flying because of coronavirus. Where, where we have this, in my opinion, much, much deeper, irreversible emergency. The, you know, I, okay, you know, a bad disease like this, it's not good. And, you know, there's going to be more of them and, and people do die. People have already died. It's a terrible thing. But so far, we've had thousands of people die from the coronavirus. I really think with the climate emergency uh, over the course of the rest of the century, we could have tens of millions or hundreds of millions or even possibly going into the billions of people dying from this. It's the, the scale here is just it, of the climate emergency is enormous. And the other thing is we, we have that. It's basically we, we can see that coming very clearly. Um, we don't know exactly how it's going to play out. Like, is it going to cause geopolitical instability that leads, leads to wars, possibly even nuclear wars? We don't know how it's going to play out, but we know it's really bad. Whereas, you know, pandemic's more of a, it's a little bit more of a, you're rolling the dice. It could be bad. It could not be bad. Um, anyway, the, the point is, we're as a species, we are completely underestimating the magnitude, the scale, and the irreversibility. This The climate emergency could beleaguer us as a species um, for hundreds or thousands of generations into the future. I mean, it's just, it's not, it's such a large scale of an emergency and it's unfortunately unfolding over, you know, years and decades as opposed to days and weeks uh, that we just have, it's like our brains haven't evolved to wrap around this problem and actually treat it like an emergency. And, and for, for, for 14 years, I've been trying to say to everyone, like, this is really an emergency. And I get, you know, people tell me I'm alarmist. They tell me to shut up. They, they ignore me. They, you know, um, I get stigmatized so much just for, it's, all I've been trying to do is ring this alarm bell for the, for the good of everyone. And I get so much crap for it. And then, you know, um, how, how do we wake people up and, and, yeah, and, and and this coronavirus has been very educational for, I think, climate activists, because now we know just how quickly people can respond and we know just how quickly institutions can respond. And man, if we could just give that same level of priority to the climate emergency, we would it would be night and day. And and I would feel so proud of our species and feel optimism about the future. Like we know things are going to get worse. That's already locked in. But if we were treating it the way we should be treating it, it would change the outlook for humanity's future tremendously. Mm -hmm. Well, yeah, I guess if, if we see over the next few weeks and months with Corona and whatever COVID-19 it's called that, uh, the world coming together and, and kind of collaborating to try and dampen it down and, 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 and ride through it, um, you know, obviously it can be done. That was one other question I, I was thinking about, like, well, there's multiple, but one, 
is there any way you can make climate change less abstract and as i heard others ca- calling it like you know it's pollution effectively is making it more real to the layman so that it's something that w- will scare them now what what are what are the things you're thinking about that could kind of potentially I- accelerate yeah. action it's a great question i mean that's that's the big question and the movement's been struggling with that for a, a long time even before i joined the movement 14 years ago so um i i would say two things um well, maybe three things. Okay. We have so, time. So, don't worry. Yeah. So the first one is, um, I agree with you that I, I, my, so everyone has their own kind of theory of change. And for a long time, the kind of like received wisdom within the climate science, the climate communication and the climate activist community was, you know, try to be positive and try to meet other people with their values and be solutions oriented. Don't scare them too much. I think that was absolutely wrong. I still think humanity is not scared enough about climate change and no one likes it's not pleasant to scare other people but let's face it fear is something that we have we're afraid of the coronavirus and we're acting because of that fear if we weren't afraid of the coronavirus we wouldn't be acting same thing with climate change climate breakdown um if we're not afraid of it enough then we're not going to do anything about it and guess what we're doing nothing about effectively nothing about climate change um you know david wallace's Wallace Wells's excellent book, Uninhabitable Earth, came out and um, and it scared people and it helped raise awareness, for example. Um, and there was a backlash within the science community. They, they quibbled with a few things about it. I, I thought overall it was pretty accurate. And it was I was grateful that, you know, um, someone with the writing skills um, and someone who wasn't prone to basically hiding behind scientific jargon, you know, and kind of taking this tone that that scientists take which which i think gives the public the miss the the wrong impression that this is like something we have under control or or that we're not that concerned about it because a lot of us are a lot of scientists are but that's a different language the scientific language is a different language and if you don't speak that language you will take the wrong impression so so yeah i think i think we need to not we need to stop trying to not scare people we have to speak climate truth and say in, in words that the public can understand that, yes, this is a life or death emergency. It's irreversible. It's happening faster than we thought. And there's no way, there's really no way to hide from it. I mean, we're so interconnected uh, geopolitically that if a, a very wide swath of the tropics becomes uninhabitable, or if India and Pakistan run out of water and food, um, you know, those kinds of the, the sorts of geopolitical instability that that could trigger is going to affect all of us. Okay. So that's the first thing. Um, uh, the second thing is um, nonviolent direct action. So we need to, those of us who understand that this is an emergency, it doesn't, it doesn't wake people up to just tell people that. We have to start acting like it's an emergency. Um, you know, if the house is on fire analogy, right? If your house is on fire, you don't, you don't just keep doing what you're doing. You, know, you don't keep watching Netflix or whatever. You you know you grab your kids, you grab your pets, and you call 911 and you rush out of there. Um, so so we we need to act like this is an emergency. Those of us who already get that it is a life or death emergency, we have to start putting um, our response to you know and and waking people up and actually we have to start putting our kids, our own lives, and the planet ahead of our careers and ahead of our fears of, of kind of like playing it safe. You know, I, I think 
a lot of the, the, the youth activism that we've seen over the last, uh, you know, 15 months or so, um, it effectively, you know, Greta Thunberg, she, it's, it would be terrifying for me to, to speak truth to power in front of the United Nations, for example. And here's this 15 year old girl, um, with autism, very shy. And she's standing up there in front of the entire world and saying, you guys let us down. You're, you're saying one thing, you're doing another thing. Um, the house is on fire. We need to act and you're not acting. And you, you know, this is effectively genocide against young people. Um, the reason she, I, I'm convinced that the reason she's able to do that, that, that fearlessness is, is effectively because she's more afraid of what's happening to our planet and what that means for her future. All right. So she, um, so, so we have to start acting like this is an emergency. And one way to do that, that cuts through, uh, you know, all the, the, the kind of the preconceived notions that people have, all of the noise, um, all of the social norms is nonviolent direct action. So basically civil disobedience and doing things that are effectively harmless to other people, not nonviolent, but that, um, are inconvenient to the status quo and therefore lead to you, for example, being arrested. Um, and, and once that, once enough people start doing that, the system starts to change. Um, you know, once, once a, once a police officer, um, handcuffs her, you know, 100th 80 year old climate activist who keeps saying, I'm just doing this for my grandkids, you know, maybe her mind starts to change a little bit and she starts to say, maybe something's wrong with the system. You know, maybe it's not these grandmas who are, have, or who have the problem here, but it's, or whether it's youth activists or, or middle-aged activists, it doesn't matter. But the point is, you know, we know we're doing this um, for the good of everyone and we're on the right side of history and there's something deeply, deeply wrong with the system right now. And so by, by standing up to that system, and putting and taking personal risk on behalf of everyone that starts to change the system. And then the third thing, which, which I think is probably something that is maybe more controversial than the first two at this point is that I, I really feel that leading climate activists, not climate scientists, leading cl climate activists, I happen to be both of those. Um, we have to start li like li living our lives as if this were an emergency, which means, for example, like it means a lot of things. We have to get politically engaged for one thing. Um, we have to start doing more nonviolent direct action for another thing. But we also have to start using less fossil fuels ourselves. Because again, like look at Greta Thunberg. She, she has, just like me, she abhors burning fossil fuel. It hurts her soul to get on an airplane. She can't do it. So she had to come to the US to come to North America. She had to get on a boat. <laughs> and then she had to get on a boat to go back. And it's just because I, I know exactly where she's coming from, because it just feels for me, fossil burning fossil fuel, like fossil fuel is a deadly substance. And I know by burning it, people are going to die. And I, and I, so I make that direct connection between burning this stuff, you know, getting on the plane, burning that kerosene or getting in a gas car, burning that gasoline, whatever it is, I, I make a connection between those carbon emissions and global heating that's going to make the planet get hotter it's going to cause ice to melt sea level to rise um you know more wildfires all of the climate breakdown we're seeing and an actual real death um to innocent beings on this planet the youngest among us people that aren't born yet coral reefs that don't have a voice trees that don't have a voice animals that don't have a voice and and it could lead to 
you know, contribute to the sixth mass extinction, which could harm biodiversity on this planet for millions and millions of years into the future. So, so to me, I just don't want to burn that stuff. And, and if, if you see that this is really an emergency, I think naturally, once, once that percolates deep into your emotions, and it's not just intellectual anymore, but you feel that it's an emergency and you feel that getting on that plane is actually harming other beings, including children, you just naturally want to do it less. <laughs> so, um, so, so again, I just urge climate activists who really understand what a serious emergency this is to consider starting to take reasonable effort. You know, don't be, I'm not a purist about it. I still burn some fossil fuel. It's extremely hard to go all the way to zero. But once you start reducing it, you also start to see where the system is failing us and where we need to change the system so that we can go further. And you start express you, you you become free more to express what an actual emergency this is. And so you know, I don't think it's harmless actually that that leading climate activists uh, are are for the most part not taking steps to reduce their emissions and uh, and are even again um, chastising. And, and trying to stop those of us from talking about this, that, that are reducing our emissions, I think that's doing more harm to the movement than people realize right now, because it's sending a clear message to the public that we we think that we're saying that this is an emergency, but we're not acting like it. And so they're getting this mixed message and it's not cutting through. We, there's so many barriers that we need to cut through, right? This barrier of selfishness, this barrier of of time that that is unfolding over decades, this barrier that is unfolding over the entire planet, this barrier of space, this barrier of science, the fact that it's frankly complex. It's to know what's happening at the quantum mechanical level with these, um, you know, greenhouse gas molecules in the atmosphere, how that translates to an energy balance, which translates to global heating, which translates to, you know, drier fuel and, and uh, you know, drier temperature, drier um, air and hotter temperatures, et cetera, and wildfires, and, and how it translates to, you know, stronger hurricanes, et cetera, et cetera. That's all pretty complicated. So there's a lot of barriers that we have to cut through here, including just social norms that, that you know, most people, especially older people, they live their whole lives with all of this fossil fuel around them and not thinking that there's a problem there. So it's very normal for people to get in the car and drive somewhere or to get on the plane and fly somewhere. That's what's normal right now. So the vast majority of people don't see any problem with that. And, and they're reinforced. It's a self-reinforcing thing when someone's flying or driving and, and everyone around them is flying or driving and Instagramming it and whatever. It's very hard to break through that deeply, that very deep, strong social norm, right? So, so if we don't start reducing our own emissions, we're, we're, we're putting ourselves as activists, as messengers at a, at a severe disadvantage. We're cutting through all of that, those barriers and frankly, taking reasonable efforts to, to reduce you know, like, for example, uh, the average person in the U.S. emits around 20 metric tons of CO2 equivalents per year, which is more than twice the average European. Right. So for an American climate activist, the average one to to cut her emissions in half is really not that hard. So I'm not saying like go all the way to zero or get crazy or stop using iPhones or even, you know, anything crazy like that. I'm just saying take reasonable efforts to try to use less, to at least try to use less than your average or maybe less than the average human, which is about five metric tons per year. Um, and it's really not that hard to do that. And it's, it's satisfying because 
if, if you get how serious this is, you shouldn't want to be, you should want to reduce, you shouldn't want to keep emitting as much. Um, and then again, it just, I think it sends a much more consistent message that this is in fact an emergency. So I, I've been very, it's been very hard for me over the years to get so much pushback from other activists. Cause I just, I, I keep thinking to myself, man, this is, this is part of why the movement has been so slow. Um, is, is just because not only are people not willing to take this to me, like very obvious step to start burning less, but they're, they're, they're so, they come up with such powerful rationalization, rationalizations about why it's even a mistake to talk about this. So again, I'm not saying don't do other stuff, but I'm a huge advocate for systems change. You know, almost, it doesn't take me any energy anymore to burn less fossil fuels. It's just part of my daily life. So I don't even, you know, expend any energy doing that every mm-hmm. all of my energy like doing this podcast it's all about pushing for systems change sure. and waking you know i think we need to wake people up before we're going to get systems change um that that matters so so anyway i i just those are the three things that i okay. think we need no that's that's brilliant brilliant uh detail and great great food for thought for, for sure there and, and before we do wrap up at the end, I'll definitely get some more ideas of actions that people can take from you, um, from your experience. Do do scientists generally agree on on what ch- climate change is and what's happening? Is, is there a broad church of agreement on that? Oh yeah, it's like greater than ninety nine percent now. I mean, we all we all agree that it, it's it's the planet's getting hotter, and that's what's causing all of this crazy the crazy wildfires. I mean, it's not, it's contributing to, it's making them worse, right? It's, it's one of the causes, but the, it's, it's supercharging all of these disasters we've been seeing recently. Um, the flooding, the hurricanes, um, the fires, the climate migrants, um, you know, we agree that it's, it's a huge stressor to agriculture and it could, it could lead to problems with, uh, water scarcity and food scarcity in the future. Um, and, and we agree that humans are causing 100% of this. So that's what we agree on. We don't agree on how to solve it. And that's sort of as it should be. I mean, that's, that's, there shouldn't be any debate about the scientific reality of anthropogenic, dangerous anthropogenic climate breakdown, but there should be debate about what we do to solve it. And that's, that's where we should be talking. Like it's a waste of time to talk about whether it's happening. It's it's very clearly happening. Sure. And on the solution side, I I was interested in kind of uh, reading on areas that they identify bright spots or 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 where it's working well in whatever area you're trying to improve or solve problems. Is there anywhere on the planet that you see bright spots emerging that could be replicated across the globe? Um, I would say for me, the only bright spot right now is the, the, the grassroots climate movement, which is getting stronger and stronger, but it's not strong enough. Um, we had a, I had a a rude wake up call here in the U S, um, just about a week ago on super Tuesday when like the next day there was a, or a couple of days later, there was a story that the majority of, uh, people who say climate is their top issue a little over half of them actually um, voted for joe biden in the primary instead of bernie sanders and there's a huge discrepancy between their both their policy record on climate and their plans for climate and how they talk about climate not to mention the fact that joe biden has deep ties to the fossil fuel industry which are completely open like there's no it's you can google it in a second and you'll see all kinds of crazy stuff about how he takes money from them how he fills his campaign staff with 
you know, uh, fossil fuel executives and lobbyists. It's right there out in the open. And yet, basically, people who are concerned about climate were still voting for him. So there's a lot of there's a lot of work still to do. There's still a lot of ignorance out there. There's still we have to wake people up that this is not just another issue, that this is a planetary emergency. And we do have to we're going to have to make some changes to our lifestyles and we're going to have to you know, change our economy. We might have to raise taxes a little bit, although I think there's, you know, there's a lot, a lot of other, we, we, anyway, don't, I guess I shouldn't go down the rabbit hole of, of politics, but, and, and I hate, I hate the fact that, that I do feel like I have to engage in that way, but to me, it's survival now and it's survival of my kids. So I don't, I don't feel like I have the luxury anymore of sitting on the sidelines with this politics stuff. But there's a lot of work to do, but it is still growing. Um, it's evolving. You know, the, the youth climate strikes were huge. Extinction Rebellion was huge. There's more stuff coming on the horizon. You know, a, a grassroots move, movement like this can't stay static. It has to be constantly evolving and adapting and changing if it's going to grow. But, you know, it's it's driven by the fact that the planet is getting hotter and that's causing all kinds of crazy uh, catastrophes like we've seen over the last few years. I, I don't think we even, everyone knows what they are <laughs> at this point. Um, and that stuff's not going to, as long as we keep emitting these, uh, these greenhouse gases into the atmosphere, which we're still doing at an exponentially increasing rate, although I think there was a dip down because of the coronavirus, but you know, with, with uh, under kind of normal circumstances, still going at an exponentially increasing rate. And certainly as long as that keeps happening, these catastrophes are going to only get worse and more frequent. That's just the physics here. And so the movement's going to keep getting stronger. To me, that's that's the bright spot. Mm-hmm. We we know how to fix this. We we can switch to renewables really quick. We can stop flying really quick. We can, you know, take all kinds of measures to limit the damage and to decarbonize our economy very rapidly if we decide to do this. And that's the key thing. We have not decided there's no consensus among humans right now that this is even something that we should worry about let alone you know kind of take massive rapid action for so it's it's yeah so so if if i think we're we're maybe in the a transition right now and a social inflection point where we transition to kind of you know ignoring this um you know blissfully uh, to 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 suddenly waking up this phase transition to waking up this oh crap moment this is actually an emergency our kids could die because of this and then rapid action at the systems level like no more politicians who deny this and just only politics will only elect people who really this is my hope at least that that really want massive action rapid action then we'll start to get sensible policies um, which really change things quickly that's to me the spot. So we're not there yet, but it's it's happening. A couple of years ago, I was really depressed because there there still was no really climate. The, the climate movement was so little that it, it was just a very niche thing. And now it's starting to go mainstream. And it has to. We need a billion climate activists. You know, maybe we have ten million right now. We need that to, that number to grow by another factor of a hundred. I think. Right. Mm, look, it's going and hopefully going in the right direction. And I I can't help but keep thinking about what you mentioned as learning from the coronavirus and what's sparking people into action there and you know in italy at the moment they're you know cutting down a quarter of the country whatever 16 million people on lockdown stopping flights in and out things that if you suggested doing that because of climate change nobody would typically 
you know, listen to you or, 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 or take oh, that they, action. They would laugh at you. Yeah. They, well, they would do more than laugh at you. They yeah. would, they would ostracize you and they would attack you for, yeah. for suggesting that. Yeah. But it's, 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 it's funny. That it's, I, I, I know from experience. <laughs> yeah. It's reactive rather than pro. Like we have all this time to be proactive about how we can actually try and improve things before the massive, uh, catastrophic events really happen. Um, but we choose not to uh, only will try to react when it actually does happen. And that's what I wrote down here. Like has a big enough catastrophic event hit the U S or some, you know, part of Western Europe relating to climate change that will have that massive impact for people to really wake up. I wonder. Yeah. Well, um, I, I still think that non-violent direct action might wake people up more than, um, you know, than the actual catastrophes. But I think the catastrophes, they wake up a small percentage of humans who then can engage in nonviolent direct action, which is sort of like, it's like a transmission to the rest of humanity, hopefully. But yeah, I think we're already at a pretty catastrophic state. I mean, look at the Australian wildfires and we're, we're on the verge of losing the, the vast majority of the world's coral reefs. So, so one of the planet's kind of signature ecosystems, we're on the verge of effectively losing it. Um, and, uh, you know, and we have to start reducing if, if we want to have any fighting chance to stay under two degrees Celsius or maybe 1.5 degrees Celsius of global heating. It's debatable whether we can even do that at this level, but we need to be reducing at something like 10 percent per year right now. Every year we wait that 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 percent re- emissions reduction per year goes up because the remaining carbon budget to stay under those thresholds is is getting less. And we're, we're starting to realize that even staying under those those thresholds of 1.5 or 2 degrees Celsius of global heating, um, reaching those thresholds is much more damaging than we thought. So so we're learning that that you know catastrophes that we didn't expect until hotter temperature levels are are we're, we're now kind of forecasting that they're going or projecting that they're going to happen at lower temperatures. And you know we've we've procrastinated for decades. We really we've known since the 70s quite clearly what was coming down the pipe and then in the 80s you know jim hansen famously sounded the alarm in very you know in very clear terms and and we've been ignoring this problem it would have been very easy to solve this if we'd started in the 80s or even the 90s and you know we could have reduced at one percent per year for example instead of now we have to go at ten percent per year which is almost impossible to imagine how we could do that but with the like you pointed out with this coronavirus now there it does seem like there's a path maybe we could reduce that quickly okay very quickly if we we decided to if we chose to yeah it's a choice and it's a behavior change but you know use use not necessarily use the coronavirus as a building momentum but as you said pick out some of the things you can learn from it you released an app uh, was it earlier this year last year earth hero around climate change that can maybe oh, yeah. p- make people more aware of what they're they're using and and maybe start getting them to think about how they can take action to reduce that yeah well, coincidentally today is actually the release day of our, our what we call our minimum viable product so so yeah I, I, that's a great time to publicize that so this is a this is a, an app that helps you not only reduce your emissions but also engage in other actions like you know political engagement or protest actions and to do so in community instead of just by yourself so check it out it's um it's on iphone it's on that you know the apple store and it's also in android it's called earth hero with a space and the, and the website is earthhero.org. So, and I should also mention too that I have a book, um, which published in 2017, um, which is called "Being the Change," 
live well and spark a revolution. And um, if you know if you don't want to buy it, it's available for free on my website, petercalmus.net. Um, so yeah, that's a good a good resource for sort of exploring where we're at right now. Although, you know, I, I've my thoughts have evolved a lot since since I published the book. Um, so, so, so this podcast is, a, is kind of a better snapshot of where my thinking is right now, but I think there's still a lot in the book that people will find interesting. Brilliant. So you've given, uh, you've given your website a call out and you're on Twitter, climate human, uh, at climate yeah. human as well. Um, Peter, look, thanks so much for taking time out. You're obviously so passionate about this. It's great to hear, uh, that coming across. I, I really hope it's kind of given some folks something to, to think about. And if there was just one simple action, you know, the 1% better mindset of, of doing one thing in the next week or month that people can do to, to start making that, you know, incremental improvement, what, what would you recommend? Uh, become a climate activist. That's absolutely the thing you have to do. Become a climate activist. And, and that, that'll mean different things for different people. But you want to join a, an existing group and kind of find people that uh, you, you enjoy being an activist alongside. And then just shouting the, the need for action from the rooftops. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, brilliant. I'm sure there's lots of links. I'll try and dig out a couple uh, that people can join here in Ireland or in wherever they're listening. Um, but it's a, it's, it's, you know, it's, it's a, an eye-opening conversation, Peter. And I really hope people enjoy listening to it and and take action as a result. Yeah, thanks a lot for um, for having me on, Rob. It was a pleasure. Great to talk to you, Peter. Have a great day. Yeah. Thank you, man. Yeah, you too. Take Bye. care. Bye bye. Hey folks, thanks so much for listening to the show. If you enjoyed it, could you please consider helping me extend the reach of the podcast that a little bit further? You can do that in a number of ways. The number one way is to subscribe on your app of choice. This helps me with the chart ranking, leading to more folks stumbling across the podcast and checking it out. You could also repost it on your social media channels. Any of them would be great. And maybe even tell a friend in person or over the phone. Pick up the phone, give them a call and tell them about the 1% Better podcast. Tell them about this episode or one that you've heard in the past. Any will do. I would really appreciate it. In the last year, we set up a 1% Better Slack community, which you can join for free. And interact with me and other members of the community and improve through holding each other accountable and sharing monthly challenges. It's a lot of fun. Check it out. I'm into season four of this incredible journey and the more of these interviews and solo shows that I research, record and share, the better I believe that they get and more loaded with actionable takeaways that you can learn from. I know I've learned so much from it so far and it's always really, really fulfilling and rewarding when I hear from you on what you took from it. So do reach out, rob at robofthegreen.ie. And of everybody that listens, 90% listen and enjoy, but only around 10% actually take action, write down takeaways and put them into practice. I am convinced that if we can move that number a bit higher, the listeners will not only make steps forward towards their goals, but they will be more fulfilled and happy and better. Change doesn't happen overnight. It is hard, but it's all about taking the first step, whatever that is for you. You can absolutely do this. Make a plan, be deliberate, take action. Don't overreach. Start with those small incremental improvements 
and over time you will see great progress. It's all in the pursuit of betterness. So again, thank you so much for listening. Good luck and stay safe.